Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Anthropocene. And yes, I've changed the music for this episode because it is more fitting. When I talked to Dar Jamail about his book, The End of Ice, he said he was beyond being hopeless or hopeful. He called himself hope-free. But Ellen Kelsey tells us that hope matters. That's the title of her book, which came out only a few months ago. Her book begins with this line, quote, I wrote this book for you and for the people you love who believe the world is screwed. I suspect you know who I mean, unquote. Yeah, I know who you mean, Ellen. <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> After all, I've named this interview project Suicide Earth. I've been a doomsayer, I admit it. But you've convinced me I need to change my ways. I started all this to help, to be one of those who provides others with the knowledge and wherewithal they need to themselves help make a positive difference in the ceaseless destruction of our planetary home. But now you've helped me understand that one cannot make a positive difference while coming from a wholly negative mindset. And that's what it all comes down to, isn't it? Mindset? Mm-hmm. I think mindset is a really important part of it. And we know um, there's some wonderful work being done at Stanford's Mind and Body Lab that shows that that we actually have physical uh, responses to what we perceive in, in terms of our, you know, our, our emotional expectations. And so you actually have objective reality is affected by subjective beliefs. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And we, we certainly know that's true in a lot of medical circumstances. Um, and I think it's absolutely true when it comes to the ways that we think about and believe what is possible for the planet. The full title of the book is Hope Matters, Why Changing the Way We Think is Critical to Solving the Environmental Crisis. Let me take a moment to more fully introduce you. Ellen Kelsey is a Ph.D. and a popular keynote speaker and media commentator. Her her work focuses on the reciprocal relationship between humans and the rest of nature, particularly in relation to the emotional implications of the narrative of environmental doom and gloom on children and adults. She's an award-winning author of several environmental books for children and adults. I noticed several testimonials at the front of your book, Ellen. One of them was from Mitchell Tomashow, who I interviewed several months ago for his book, To Know the World. Mitch tells me you two Mm -hmm. actually taught a class together once. Yeah, a couple of times, actually. We were both um, teaching at a university in Victoria in British Columbia, and it was wonderful because uh, that program was all about environmental education and communications, and we were living on campus with our students who were in an immersive um, uh, three-week program, and, and, you know, I I teach everything outside. I I really think that when we're learning, it doesn't matter if we're learning about how how to, you know, uh, talk about climate change on Instagram, you know, being in the trees and being amongst uh, living uh, living environments is just so fruitful and, and rich in terms of how we explore ideas and think about 
this relationship between evidence-based and emotions and creativity and expression and communication. And Mitch, I don't know if he told you, but he's a really good musician. And so uh, we ended up doing a lot of work musically as well as we explored these ideas around climate change and what kind of world we're, we're co-creating. Well, this, this hope that you talk about, it's not pie in the sky. It's not Pollyanna. It's evidence-based. It has scientific underpinnings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a really important distinction, and I appreciate it. Because I, I would say that um, a lot of times when we're talking about hopefulness, we, we're really talking about wishful thinking. And wishful thinking, as I see it, is, you know, when you really hope something or wish that something would come along and, you know, make something better, you know, and we know in, if you think about literature, uh, a lot of times there's this narrative of, of um, dystopian literature around climate change, for example, and that's where we think everything is ruined. Or there's this um, idea of noble bright, you know, where a hero comes in and solves everything for us. And I'm really much more interested in uh, a narrative idea, which is called hope punk. And in hope punk, uh, we, it doesn't really matter whether you believe things will get better or worse, but you act in your best possible way. You know, you act in the way as you wish the world to be. So wishfulness is there in terms of, of, of our imagining of, of the world we're creating. But the evidence that I'm talking about around hope is looking at the psychology of hope, the philosophy of hope, um, and looking at real-time change, and I think this is a crucial part of it, is that because we have such a doom-and-gloom narrative about the state of the planet and about the, you know, the prognosis of climate change, for example, we, we assume that things were, bad, were good and are always getting worse. And because of that really dominant assumption, then we, don't, we often don't look to see whether the thing we really care about has changed in, in any kind of positive direction or whether there are solutions that are worth amplifying, those kinds of things. And I often say, you know, if you and I were talking about sports or politics or something, you know, I'd never come on a show like this and talk to you if I didn't know, you know, the score from yesterday or who was playing. But it's very common to talk about climate change or to talk about the environment um, without specificity or to know what has changed in the recent time because of the assumption that it's all heading in a negative direction and we don't really need to look. And so I think the evidence that I'm talking about is positive trends that are moving in the ways we need things to go, and yet we hear very little about them because almost all of what we hear about the environment we learn from the media, you know, and the media we know is very heavily oriented in problem identification rather than solutions orientation. So the vast majority of whatever we hear about the environment is telling us about important problems. And I should be really clear, um, climate change is an urgent, global, really worrying problem, as is marine degradation and other things. But because we only hear so much about what's broken, we almost never hear about what is moving in a good direction, and then we assume that nothing is moving in a good direction, and that's very defeating for us in terms of how how we feel, um, you know, we can be involved. Well, the way I see it, your book is, uh, for me, your book was kind of in two parts. Uh, one is is about this this deal about hope and and how important uh, it is in in actually uh, moving forward, and then and then the other was was really I thought a whole section of proofs. Where where you 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 told me a whole bunch of stuff that I was not aware of, and I've I've been paying attention in this area, 
but you 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 told us a whole lot of, uh, of positive things that 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 are happening, and and we'll get to that. But let's 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 stay with let's stay with the 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 the, the hopelessness and and the hope right now. You mentioned the the media, the 24-hour news cycles, people's alerts on their social media it's all fueling mm-hmm. an epidemic uh, epidemic of of hopelessness and 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 yet and yet if we think about it uh if there's school shootings if there's floods <clears throat> we we reassure our children we we put restrictions on violence in the movies but we we bombard them about the ruined state of our planet basically telling them it's up to them to save the world Mm-hmm. I know I find that such an interesting discrepancy, you know, because I would say the number one thing people ask me about or, or challenge me about when I'm talking about hope is they'll say, aren't you afraid of creating complacency? That somehow if we speak about hope or, or solutions that are having a positive effect, we'll make everyone complacent. And, and yet we don't say that when we're thinking about, you know, how do we talk to children about school shootings, for example, we, we immediately go to, you know, what are we doing as a community to make this safer? Where, you know, where do we find um, reassurance? Because we know that, that the way we move forward through tough times is by feeling part of a collective and by feeling that we have um, support around us. And yet, for some reason, we don't do that with the environment. And the thing that is so important in all of this, I think, is that if you look at the psychological literature, complacency is is not a big issue when you talk about positive things. It doesn't lead people to be complacent. But what we do know is that if you only tell people about problems, especially if they're already aware of them, and one thing we know about climate change is that around the world, levels of interest and concern about climate change continue to go up and up and up. They're at an all-time high. Um, So we know we have a population of people, including children, who are very aware and really care when, when you've got that circumstance and you just keep telling them what's broken, you create what Anthony Lazaritz at uh, Yale University called this hope gap, where you have high levels of concern about something and you feel absolutely powerless to do anything about it. So you're disempowered, you're disengaged, you feel helpless, you feel hopeless, you just feel like there's no point in going on. And I think this hope gap is a huge problem for dealing with these urgent, important issues that we have. And so my work is all about trying to close that hope gap. And I think in some ways the hope gap has gotten bigger because in the early days, uh, the thought was, well, we just have to tell people how broken something is or how bad it is, and they will automatically respond. But we know from psychology, um, you know, we are aware of these things, and, and that by continuing to bombard, we're actually having the opposite effect that we want to have. And there's now yeah. a lot of statistics around, you know, in Canada, for example, there was a major study on kids between grade 7 and 12, um, just done in 2020. And what it showed was that kids are very aware of climate change. They're very concerned. They know that it's caused by human activity. They know all of these things. And 46% of those students think there's nothing they possibly could do about it. Yeah, uh, some of the things that that, that that I got out of your book is the the uh, there's something called headline stress disorder. Some would say if mm-hmm. the news were a mm-hmm. pill, uh, the FDA would not approve it. Uh, exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, and because the media focuses only on the bad, not on solutions. Uh, here's a, here's a quote, uh, probably from you. Rarely 
do the media return to profile the astonishing return of life after a, uh, a catastrophic, catastrophic event? Uh, and, and another quote, positioning hopelessness as a foregone conclusion is not reality. It's a mindset, a widespread and debilitating one. Uh, you, 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 you say that hope is uh, the, the, the environmental crisis is also a crisis of hope, and that hope is therapeutic. And you mentioned a couple of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, of, of things about the power of mindset. You mentioned the hotel room attendance study and the Japanese lacquer tree boys. I thought those were both very interesting. Yeah, in both of those cases, you know, in the hotel room study, what they were looking at there was um, – hotel attendants, so the people who are uh, kindly cleaning our rooms, you know, after we are using them. And that one of the things that researchers found was that those people were concerned that they didn't have time to do any kind of physical activity to take care of themselves because they were doing, you know, they were working so hard, long hours, those kinds of things. And so what this study did was it took one sample group and people just, you know, the researchers just listened to those concerns of those hotel room attendants. And, and then the other group, they... The only intervention that they did, they didn't change diet, they didn't change exercise regime, they didn't change anything. The only thing they changed was that they showed hotel room attendants that the kinds of activities they were doing, like, you know, moving towels and, you know, reaching up to dust something or, you know, switching, flipping a mattress, those kinds of things were actually a lot of the similar activities they would do if they went to a gym, you know, that they were actually doing physical activity. And just by changing that mindset that, in fact, they were getting physical activity, what they saw was a drop in blood pressure and a drop in weight. Huh. And, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, some, of, some of the statistics that you came up with were, were distressing, uh, and I'm not sure where this came from, but only 5% of Americans believe we can reduce climate change. Well, these are coming from studies around, again, the sense of disempowerment. So what's really fascinating to me is we have many multi-year surveys that look at knowledge and attitude around climate change. And as I said, those continue to go up and up and up. So that this whole issue of you know, climate denial, which was a really concerning issue not that long ago, has really kind of moved away. Like the general, and, and, and I think we see a beautiful example of that when President Biden, on his very first day in office, uh, made statements around climate change, right, Join, rejoining the Paris Accord. And he was doing that because there's so much momentum around climate change that he now saw that as a unifying force in the United States, you know, that this was not a, a question of, of divisiveness around climate change. He knew that by talking about that, he was bringing people together around something they are mutually concerned about. I thought that was a really interesting shift. Um, so now the bigger issue is what Michael Mann, the climate um, climate scientist who is part of the IPCC, you know, the climate change agreement, what he talks about is climate doomism. And in fact, that's a, that's a big thing, because if we think we're doomed, that there's nothing we can do about it, then again, you don't have to take action, right? So so politically, you can People use climate up. doomism. Um, to give to cause people to give up, you know, and to reinforce those ideas. And and I think what's so sad to me is that when we see, like for example, the news coverage of the most recent IPC report, CC report that came out just last week, again these headlines which are so scary and frightening, 
the issues themselves are scary and frightening. But by positioning just the problem and not foregrounding the solutions that are going on, the kinds of amazing actions that are taking place and the impacts they're having, we keep feeding this climate doomism and then we cause people to feel yet again despondent, helpless, hopeless, and therefore non-active. So the very thing we're trying to engender by using these frightening headlines, we're actually working against psychologically. And that to me is, a, is the thing we have to shift. And why I'm excited by um, the emergence of something called solutions journalism, which has been happening through this big network over the last decade that um, is really making the same argument. And you use school shootings earlier, which are such horrific events. And what solutions journalism talks about with reaction to school shootings, for example, is there are many solutions that has been put in place that have a positive impact on school shootings. And so when we not only look in depth and rigorously at the problem, which is essential, but also look in depth and rigorously at solutions and how well they work and how they might be contextualized to another setting, then we move in the social directions we need to be moving. But if we just keep talking about the problems, we don't go where we need to go. Yeah, when when uh, as you as you put in in your book, when fear becomes entrenched, it is demotivating. Uh, you also point out half of the world's population is under thirty, and Amnesty mm-hmm. International mm-hmm. A- Amnesty International found that Gen Z, the Gen Z, uh, 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 they, they fear climate change the most. Yeah, there uh, are two really important values that we see um, across. It's really fascinating. It's across geography, across really socioeconomic status. The two dominant values that are coming out of this younger population that is the most dominant population now on Earth, which is great, is they are really concerned about climate change and they're really concerned about social justice. And in fact, when we think about the youth climate marches that took place uh, in 2019, you know, that were global in scope, what those marches really were about is climate justice because those youth see that it's the injustice in the world that, that co- co-creates the situation in which we you know, have this incredible climate change problem and also climate change is in, equal in terms of how it plays out. And we saw the same thing, of course, with COVID, right? That, that COVID moved along these uh, fractured fault lines on the planet in terms of injustice and racism and uh, inequality. And the same thing is true of climate change. And what I think Again, a story we don't hear. We heard a lot about those protests in 2019, but when COVID hit, we understandably had a media eclipse, really, right? We only heard about COVID mostly, and we almost heard nothing about climate change. And that would lead many people to assume that climate change kind of fell off the map. People don't care about it. But if you look at the research of um, public opinion and those kinds of things, not only did climate change hold steady, in many parts of the world in terms of concern, it actually went up during COVID. And we are now in the situation where one in every 10 people on earth lives in a place that has dedicated uh, a climate emergency declaration as a result of those protests. And those climate emergency declarations are interesting documents because they require or they hold within them a requirement for planning and action to deal with that climate change emergency. And we see universities taking them up, whole countries taking them up, uh, states taking them up. So we've seen incredible movement around climate change 
uh, but we don't hear about it again because of this media eclipse that's going on. So this combination of only hearing about the environment in a negative way and then the COVID eclipse could lead one to have a very different assumption than what's actually happening. Getting back to the children, uh, you, you pointed out that uh, that 82%, 82% of 10 to 12-year-olds uh, uh, express strong feelings of fear, sadness, and anger when discussing environmental problems. I want to read a paragraph straight from your book, quote, The reason I think that is such a sad and important point is that children are suffering emotional and psychological anguish, not from their lived experience, but as a result of their anticipation of a dystopian future they believe is inevitable. They see planetary destruction as a foregone conclusion. They are so deeply embroiled in the narrative of doom and gloom, they have no idea other futures are possible. Yeah, that's right. And I think for children it's especially difficult because in our noble zeal, as I would like to say, um, you know, to bring climate change awareness um, to our populations, We've really tried to bring it into school systems, which is a good thing, a noble thing, you know. But unfortunately, again, this problem identification orientation where we only hear about the crises of the climate and nothing about the actions that are being taken and are having a positive impact causes them to be at very high risk for, um, you know, emotional distress. And we know that the American Psychological Association, the Canadian Psychological Association, Australian Psychological Association, each of them now recognizes climate change as a, you know, a public health emergency for mental well-being and emotional well-being. And again, not only because of uh, if you're directly impacted by climate change, but your concern around it. And what we see in the academic literature is this real rise in numbers of terms to try and capture that feeling that a lot of children and adults are experiencing. So terms like eco-anxiety or eco-grief or um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder caused by concern about a future they think is hopeless. You know, so yeah. all of these kinds of manifestations are occurring in because of the way that we talk about climate change. And again, I just keep wanting to underscore, our intentions are really good. We're trying to say we have an, a crisis, but it's how we're doing it that is really ineffective. And in fact, it's not neutral, but destructive. You, you link existential anxiety to uh, the, the shopping boom of Black Friday 2019. Yeah, that's right. There's a, there's a psychological idea that if you really know that there's a problem and you're really concerned about it and all that you hear about it is, is more of what a problem it is, then what you do is you try to go to this place of self-soothing, you know, and, and self-calmness. And in our consumerist societies, um, over time, we have this idea, you know, if you have more stuff, you're kind of, you're kind of okay, you know, like you're, you're solid. Um, I guess it's why we, we feel we need to have a home or whatever. You know, it gives our stuff, gives us a sense of, of, our, of our strength or our permanence on the earth, even though we all know that we're impermanent. But we fold, fold that. And so we actually create situations where people acquire more stuff when they feel more vulnerable in those ways, right? They, they self-medicate through shopping. And so by creating this existential crisis where we feel our whole being is threatened by climate change, we're inadvertently fueling um, consumerism, which, of course, is, is uh, the antithesis of what we want to be. You know, we, consumerism is a huge problem for the environment, it's a huge problem for climate. 
Uh, American uh, Psychological Association uh, states that hope helps us stay engaged with stressful situations, promote coping sp- skills, and reduces denial. Uh, I want to read something else directly from your book. Feeling furious and upset at deforestation, coal-fired power plants, and politicians who fail to lead urgently needed climate reforms, or angry that you've inherited a screwed-up situation from previous generations is justified. Outrage shows you know what's going on and you know what absolutely must change. Reaching the point of enough is enough spurs us to protest, boycott, and stand up for the things we love and believe in. Anger and hope are not opposites. They have a symbiotic relationship. They're mobilizing Mm -hmm. emotions. Exactly. And, you know, I think this is a really important point because often when you're talking about hope, it's easy to imagine that you're asking people to just be cheerful or, you know, like always thinking brightly. But but really it's just the complexity of emotions that's so important to this. And both hope and anger are very activating emotions. They cause us to to move forward or to do things that we know are important and that, that are hard to do. And then there are a whole bunch of other emotions that we have, like despair or or helplessness, they're very deactivating emotions, and they cause us to close down. And what's, what's fascinating to me is that both hope and anger cause us to look out and, and to work more collectively and more creatively, actually, whereas these other emotions cause us to shut down and to go very insular and to feel like we can't take action. And so some emotions create a lot of agency, a lot of sense of empowerment, a lot of sense of action, and hope and anger really works symbiotically to do that. There's a woman named Lisa Kretz who's an academic um, who's done a lot of work on what she calls outlaw emotions. And one of the really important ideas around this is that when we're talking to people about how they feel about the environment, and we rarely do that. We often talk about the environment in terms of what we think about it. But when we talk about what we feel, you'll find there's a huge range of emotions that we hold around any issue at at any particular time. And creating safe spaces for people to share those feelings is a really important part of engendering the empowerment or the sense of pride that one can make a difference. Um, And that is further fueled by this, what I was talking about, where, you know, having current information about what is happening so that you can throw yourself behind it it's those two things together, really sharing the feelings we honestly have and then being aware of current things that we can be a part of. Those two things together are really important. And I, I worked this last summer to create an existential toolkit for climate justice educators with a whole group of academics um, from around the world who are all working in these kinds of questions about how we create those safe spaces for feelings and emotions to be expressed. Existential toolkit. I like the sound of that. I was, I was <laughs> yeah. actually, uh, 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 I was, I was, I was interested to find out that there's actually, there's actually, uh, uh, in 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 the studies being done, there's there's something called hope theory, and hope theory is mm-hmm. anchored in the belief that human actions are goal oriented. I, I I really liked the quote, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of different theories around hope, and that one, is, that particular one, is is really helpful to think about. It puts it in a behavioralist um, kind of framing, you know. So it's like 
You can set a goal. The idea behind hope theory as that's used is that you can actually set aspirations and move towards them, you know? So it puts a lot of agency on individuals. And um, there's a lot of work being done in that area that I think is very powerful. And then I think it's important to look at other ideas around hope. So one of the places I was looking was, for example, in hospice and end-of-life care, um, where uh, the idea of a future may or may not be possible depending on how you think spiritually. And even in those cases, hope turns out to be very important, even in terms of, so say you have no hope that the planet will make its way through climate change. Even in that case, um, this, this sense of a meaningful present and finding hope in the actions we take today to make a more meaningful presence is a very powerful way of engendering hope, which has proven to be very important in end-of-life care about having a meaningful present, even if your prognosis is not very positive um, in terms of an illness. So I think, I think there's all these different ways of thinking about hope. And what one thing I think is crucial, too, is that um, hope is very much a, um, something that, that is individually felt but collectively engendered. And so we know from research, for example, that fear and shame, which has been used an awful lot to try to motivate people around the environment, is not very powerful. But things like prideful participation in meaningful things helps you to stay with stuff when it's really hard to do. And I think that we see in British Columbia, for example, with COVID-19, the health officer here, the way that she was thinking about it was be kind, be safe. You know, so she was, she was really trying to engender these collective responses of taking care of others as a way of moving um, action around COVID-19. And it's very similar to this idea of a collective movement. I think that's why the climate change marches have been so powerful. I was interested that you mentioned uh, uh, that there are climate anxiety support groups. Uh, I I am certainly not aware of any in my area. How how common are these? Are, Are they growing? Yeah, they are growing. And I think they're coming out of a of a broader movement that looks at how do we have dialogues about important issues in ways that just by talking about them and sharing our feelings, it it takes the feeling, like when we internalize those feelings and we think we're the only one who's feeling this, then that feeling really can take hold of us and allow us to, to, you know, to feel despondent or to feel depressed. But when we share it collectively and we hear, oh my goodness, all these people are concerned about the same thing, it's very powerful. And so we see the same thing. I, I think I refer in the book to, um, you know, these movements around talking about end-of-life care or around death and making and, and enjoying that over di- dinner. There's a whole series called Dinner Over Death or Death Over Dinner. I can't, I can't remember which way. But it's these ways of, of opening up um, opportunities to share our feelings. And we certainly know that's been very powerful in terms of um, cancer treatment and survivorship. Um, that's it's been really enhanced by creating opportunities to talk about these feelings. And that's why I think this existential toolkit and this um, network of academics is really important because it's saying the same thing is true for the ways we feel about climate change and how do we make sure that that finds its way into the classroom as well as just you know hearing about the problems of climate change. Being perfectly honest, Ellen, I did think you'd be somewhat in denialism with all the sweetness and light stuff on hope, but 
it's very clear you're not in denialism in the least. You see what we're all seeing. You're just teaching us how to better attack the solution. And I'd, 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 I'd like to move uh, to some of the, the things that are actually going on. One of the things that I like in, in your book is that every, every chapter is begun with a, a, a poem of sorts. Where do those come from? Oh, that's very nice of you. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I um, I, I was lucky enough. I I have found it very helpful in my life to spend sort of focused time on writing, and I was very lucky to go to a um, a retreat in Finland a couple of years ago. And when I went there, I went specifically. I had been trying to write this hope book, so it's a nonfiction book that's all evidence based and informed by many academic sources. Um, and I, I thought before I went to Finland that that's what I would work on. But I kind of made a decision at the last moment to take nothing with me and just see what, see what I ended up writing. And for whatever reason, I ended up writing all of this poetry. And I had for the first time in my life, I know people say this, but I've never had this experience before. I would wake up um, you know, with a fully formed poem in my head. And all I had to do was find a pen and write it down, you know, which was a lovely, lovely experience. And so... Yeah. There was something about this process of just, um, I, I'm very, very interested in the agency that exists in the other than human world. You know, we, we know that there are 8.7 million other species on Earth at, as a modest estimate because many species have not yet been identified. And to me, what, one of the most hopeful things for me is is the kind of resilience that exists within the other than human world that we so little hear about. You know, we, we think about humans and our human actions, which is very important in the Anthropocene for sure, because as you well know, we're on the planet that is dominated by human activity. And yet it's also, of course, the only reason you and I are breathing and anyone listening is because of the oxygen being created by ocean plants and land plants, you know, so we are absolutely interconnected to the mother than human world. And so for whatever reason in Finland, these poems that sort of celebrated, you know, the extraordinary capacity of other species just kept flying out of me. And it, it was a wonderful experience. So when I came back to writing my nonfiction, you know, evidence-based book, I just felt that that voice needed to be there too. And that's why I started those chapters that way. Well, I, I like them, and I would like to read one of them as a segue into, oh, great. In, into talking about the, the next section here. But here, here it is. First came mosses, then trees, then insects, and all the birds and mammals that feast upon them. In just 33 years, there is a forest of 10 million trees covering the 230 square miles of Washington State that the volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens sent hurling into the sky. Uh, that, that, that's a, it's, it's a really uh, nice vision of resilience. And, and, and then in, in this section of the book, you, 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 you start us off with, hey, have you missed the news? Pandas are back. So are bald eagles, mm -hmm. South Atlantic humpback whales. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and again, we hear lots of reports of, I, I mean, I think pandas are a really great example because they are the symbol of endangered species, right, for the World Wildlife Fund and, and others. So the fact that uh, pandas have made such a spectacular recovery, and they've made a spectacular recovery because of ecosystem protection, because of captive breeding, you know, a number of 
human-oriented activities have helped that to happen. And one of the things I find so intriguing with the panda recovery is the scientists working on it are saying, rather than thinking of things in these fixed categories of endangered species or threatened species or vulnerable species, you know, kind of you're fixed, they think, these particular scientists are advocating that we think much more in the ways we talk about oncology, for example. You know, are you in remission? Are you, you know, and using terms that we know are much more familiar to us and where we expect that things move in a fluid way, um, you know, between this state and another. So even the ideas of how we think about endangerment are being challenged and, and evolving. And, I, and I, suppose, I suppose my siren call is really that, things are constantly changing. Not only are they changing themselves in terms of resilience, but how we think about them is changing. And that staying up to date with that is really valuable to move in the directions that we want to be going. In the case of humpback whales, I think it's every population except two around the world is on this real recovery, increasing populations. Here along the Salish Sea, which is between Washington State and British Columbia, there are 45 humpback whales 10 years ago, there are 450 now. So, you know, a big increase in just that decade. And we now see, you know, the World Economic Forum looking at putting a, a price tag on those whales uh, in terms of their value for climate change uh, remediation. Because as, as whales move up and down in the water column, which they do, you know, they come up to the surface to breathe, they go down to feed, they go to the surface to breathe, they actually create an incredible amount of movement which creates the situation in which plankton, um, and in the case of phytoplankton, these tiny little plants that are at the surface of the ocean, which I was mentioning, make the oxygen that we're breathing mostly. Yep. Um, I think yep. it's two out of every three breaths is due to phytoplankton, something like that. But anyway, those phytoplankton are capturing carbon. So, so this recovery of whales is clearly a positive impact in terms of not only ocean ecosystem, um, you know, better fish, more, more fish recoveries, but also in terms of climate change capture. Well, it was refreshing to me to this, this whole section of your book, uh, you, uh, talking about a lot of things that, that I had just not, I guess, allowed into my mind with all of my uh, negativity and, and doomism, but it, you talked about the green corridors, all the migration routes worldwide that are being put in place by humans, all the rewilding mm -hmm. that's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just heard yesterday, you know, there's a massive rewilding project going on in the Netherlands. And for the first time, wild cats have now um, been reintroduced into that ecosystem. So this rewilding movement is, is really important on a number of frames. One is it's, it's super important for biodiversity, right? So more species and, and trying to deal with this problem of, of uh, rapid loss of species. So rewilding matters for that. But also just in this last few years, you know, we have these two massive international environmental agreements around the earth. One is the Climate Change Agreement and one is the Biodiversity Convention. And they have been ticking along for 20 years doing important things, but now we see a great synergy happening between them. And that's being driven by this idea of natural climate solutions, that, that the more we think about how, um, you know, wild spaces, both, both protecting those that exist and the recovery of those that have been damaged, that that has a huge positive impact for climate change and for species diversity. And both of those things really matter for the health of our planet. And so one of the things I've been watching in terms of currency 
there's a movement to protect 25% of earth, uh, sorry, land and water by 2025, 30% by 2030. And watching countries sign on to that now in terms of making commitments is really exciting to me because, you know, in, in terms of uh, ocean protection, I, I had the great honor and amazing amount of stress uh, working when George Bush was leaving office. I worked on a project to try to have him dedicate what was then the world's largest marine protected area as his final act of leaving office. And in fact, he did do that. But I'm happy to say that that marine protected area, which happened in 2009 as he was leaving, or 2008, I've got my dates not quite right, um, is now the 15th largest. You know, so much more eco um, ecosystem scaled marine protection has happened since that time that what I worked on is, is dwarfed, which is a really a wonderful thing. So these ambitious goals around protecting of land and ocean, um, I was shocked to hear 30% and that that's what people are going after. And the number of countries signing on to that is a really exciting development because we were talking about 12%, 10% not that long ago. I did not know anything about the Elwha River in Washington's Olympic National Park. That sounds like a big win. That was a huge win. And there, again, is a case of long-time commitment. So First Nations groups in that area have been pushing for decades to remove this massive dam from the Elwha River and successfully did in recent years. It's the largest dam removal project in the United States. And within, you know, days of, of that dam being removed. Salmon had returned to that area. We've seen Within all days. kinds of stuff going on there now. Within days, yeah. And, and I'm overestimating. Some say it's less than days, but I, I like to take the longest time frame <laughs> to say because <laughs> it's probably even better than that. So, um, But, you know, that, so this capacity for recovery that exists, and I think now, you know, we look at Suzanne Samard's work, who is a wonderful scientist who... Um, her whole work on forests and how they are communities united, you know, through these fungal um, fungal uh, root networks underneath the soil, and how how the resilience of forests is enhanced by the fact that trees actively send their energy to their younger kin, and when they die, when they're dying, they move their energy to others. You know that that these are not just individual inanimate objects. These are whole communities that are taking care of each other. And she talks about mother trees, the largest trees in a community, and how tightly they're connected to not only their kin, but other species. And so in her case, she's a forester, and she's looking at how does the knowledge of the resilience of forests impact how we should be doing forestry so that natural resilience is more possible even in those places where we are intentionally, you know, cutting trees for lumber and other uses. So just this resilience of the other than human world, I think is mind blowing and, and is where so much um, hope sits. And we see now cities, for example, recognizing the resilience of wetlands to deal with flooding issues. And those flooding issues are being exacerbated by climate change and the remediation of that when we bring in more wetlands, for example, and the conditions in which they thrive, it actually helps to deal not only with the flooding, which is the, you know, the problem we see, but also the root cause, which is the climate change. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, since, to, uh, since 2017, uh, the, the, the Maori have have uh, gotten legal rights for a river. Ecuador has enshrined the rights of nature along with Bolivia. 
In northern India, the Ganges and Yanuma rivers uh, have gained rights. Toledo, Ohio, has granted Lake Erie uh, legal personhood, uh, and 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 it, although it makes sense, uh, you you did point out that there is much less biodiversity loss on indigenous lands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're touching on such great points there. I think one is this right to personhood or the allocation of rights. So right now, the way our legal system is set up is as if the only, you know, the only thing on the world is humans. <laughs> but of course, we know that's not true. And so as we look at these very novel ways of attributing rights in our legal framework as we, uh, you know, collectively share it, then you allow for guardians, for example, in the case of Maoris, guardians who are, are indigenous peoples who are taking on the role of, of speaking on behalf of that river or speaking on behalf in a legal sense. And so really innovative ways of looking at how we protect or, or give voice to species beyond humans. Um, and so I think this landscape of, of our legal landscape is shifting too. And there's, you know, a lot of that is coming out of an animal rights sentiment. That's one driver of it. And we see that certainly there's a lot of um, activity around the rights of uh, uh, gorillas or chimpanzees or elephants, those kind of things. But also this, more ecocentric sense of rights, so the rights of a river or the rights of a, of, a, of a mountain. And that's coming from a First Nations or Indigenous real sense of interconnectedness, that we are not separate from nature, we are nature. And so, of course, those, um, you know, those rights are there already within um, a traditional knowledge way of seeing the world and then being allocated in a, in a, you know, a, a legal framework. Uh, if we if we look at food production, uh, everything has is, is seems to be changing pretty rapidly there too. Uh, you, you say the production of food has the, the production of food has a forty percent of emissions in the world, but but it's it's uh, but we we could sustainably feed ten billion people if food was was uh, plant-based. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if this was your statement, or but in your book it says, if cattle were a nation, they'd be the third largest emitter of greenhouse, greenhouse gases after only China and the U.S. And, and in 2019, 21 million diners used Grubhub. Now, most of those are going to be millennials and Gen Zs. Seven out of ten of those orders were vegetarian or vegan. So mm-hmm. we're seeing it, a real shift there. You know, uh, again, this uh, uh, younger group of people, 30 and younger, are again social justice and climate change are their top values, and they're really living those values in the choices they're making. And so it's revolutionizing food um, and what choices we have. You probably noticed that yourself, Ben. And you know, when you when you go into a place, there's, uh, there's much more likely now to be vegetarian or vegan or flexitarian op- options, you know, that are more plant-based because there's such a growing, it's the fastest growing sector of food um, is, is this plant-based movement. And I think I that's a very exciting thing because they're, sorry, go ahead, man. I was just going to say, I can't tell the difference uh, 
between uh, a regular cheeseburger and an Impossible Burger, except for the fact they probably should put another slice of cheese. The Impossible Burger is a little drier. <laughs> Other than that, I can't tell the difference. Right. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, like the emergence of those kinds of foods, right, which are very popular and and, and showing up in all kinds of places. Yeah, so, I mean, it's 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 an exciting shift because there are a number of international research projects that show we could feed the world quite well and healthily on on a more plant based diet. And um, uh, here in Canada, I'm in Canada at the moment. Um, just a few years ago, the Canadian Food Guide changed for the first time to uh, all of its protein suggestions were plant-based. So we see the change happening now in a policy framework as well. And um, I think it's fascinating when, you know, we started our interview talking about how mindset affects everything. There's a, a fascinating study done on how we describe the taste of plant-based foods uh, that again was done to the Mind and Body Lab at Stanford, and what they did was they just changed the label. So instead of getting a, you know, a yam salad or something, it was like a, a yummy yam salad, and, and and just the inclusion of more tasty, almost sinful, if I could say that, you know, like uh, decadent kinds of mm-hmm. labels yeah. really increased the amount that people would eat, would make a vegetarian or or plant based choice, I'm which is a big change because before that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> decadent is good. Before that, we would label them showing all the nutritional value of that plant, but and we'd think it was right for us, but we probably wouldn't choose it, you know? So the psychology of all this and how we, that, that knowledge then changes what we do, and that then changes how many people are choosing plants, and that then changes, you know, our prospects for climate change. So again, I think these things are changing, and we need to be hearing much more about those changes. And, and the best I can offer is to, when you see something that really upsets you or whatever, just make that step of, of actively looking for what might have changed for the better, you know? And it's, it's amazing because once you start to see it, you see it in everything. You, you start to see about, it, but when you're in that demon gloom mindset, you don't see it. T- talking about the food has, has reminded me that, that you've got, you've got a, a, a plethora of little details in your book that things I've never seen before. Talking about food, uh, flexitarians and pescatarians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I kick out of... So it's not that people have to be all one or the other, right? So a flexitarian yeah. is, is uh, mostly eating plant-based food, but sometimes eats meat or something else. And a pescatarian uh, eats fish or invertebrates often, um, you know, as their main protein source, but mostly plants. So, yeah, and people, people like these identity labels, uh, but, but really the goal is the more plants, the better. Well, I'm not going to give away everything because there's a whole other uh, there's a there's a whole page of things that that just fascinated me. Uh, uh, I'm just going to mention one thing. I had no idea rats could be tickled. Certainly didn't know they giggle yes. when they are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're highly social animals. There's a beautiful YouTube clip if someone wants to look it up of a researcher uh, tickling rats in a lab setting, and they. They, they laugh, but they laugh at a frequency too high for us to hear, and they've lowered the frequency so you can hear them giggling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think the epigenetics is, was interesting, too, uh, talking about how, how uh, uh, plants and animals actually adjust to current realities without 
changing their genetic code. Uh, the zebra finches and the hot calls was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And we do the same thing, you know, really a lot of the work on humans has been done in medical circumstances. Um, and the idea here is that, you know, often when we talk about these big threats from climate change, for example, we say, oh, well, you know, animals or, or ourselves were helpless because we can't possibly evolve quickly enough to deal with these changes. And what epigenetics is doing is it's looking at traits within our, our genetic code that are expressed in different circumstances. So you don't have to have an evolutionary genetic change. You just have a situation in which a trait that you already have is is more called for or is expressed. So in the case of these zebra finches, it's fascinating work done by a a French um, scientist working in Australia. And what she found is that um, these zebra finches who were sitting on eggs, so the chicks have not yet hatched, in a, in a situation where there was a high, there was a drought, so it was high heat. The, the, they, she doesn't know if it was the mother or the father birds or both, but an adult bird made a call that only was made in these high heat circumstances. It's a call the bird would not normally make. But when they made that call, what they found is that the developing chicks within the egg developed differently, and so those which heard that call actually were more able to deal with high heat circumstances and they actually built nests that would allow them to deal with heat better and they were different in size. They were smaller in stature and more able to deal with high heat, um, which is remarkable. So their DNA didn't change, but this expression of, of, of how those genes played out changed. And we have another really interesting example in coral, coral reefs where fishes in um, low oxygen circumstances, because we know climate change can uh, and is causing ocean warming, which causes a drop in oxygen because um, warm water doesn't hold as much oxygen as cold water. Um, if those fishes, if their parents were raised in situations of low oxygen, it was very difficult for their parents. But the offspring of those parents behaved in ways as if they were in um, high oxygen water. So again, this expression of the genes uh, was different for the offspring. Hmm. Well, back I know, to just it's basic, remarkable. Yeah, it is. Uh, back to just basic, <laughs> basic uh, good news, which which uh, I guess I've 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 been ignoring too much of. Uh, uh, and, and we need, and as you say, the, the, so does the, the, the news industry. They, they need to, to mm-hmm. pay more attention. There, there's, there has been a big surge in, in climate emergency declarations. Mm-hmm. Uh, 127 mm-hmm. countries have restrictions on plastic mm-hmm. bags. The, the EU has banned plastic straws. And, uh, and you point out that two-thirds of the world population is going to be living in megacities by mid-century, which will mean a lot more mass transit and and bicycles and things. Mm -hmm. And I think coming out of... Please, go ahead. I was just going to add that they say that millennials and Gen Z uh, are turning away from car ownership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, statistically, and, and not even getting their licenses. Because, uh, you know, recognize it's an expensive and, you know, it's, it's around this individualism, which is not part of that um, social justice movement, you know, which is much more thinking on behalf of the collective. 
and expecting that. And what we do see, um, like in the most recent election in the U.S., for example, large money is going to more public transit. The demand for that is high, and the expectation for that is high. So, yeah, we're. I, I think uh, COVID, which has just been such a devastating thing, one of the silver linings of it, it has been such a focus on cities. And then what, what do these greener cities look like? What are more livable cities like? You know, opening up more and more um, spaces within our cities for pedestrians and bikes and the amount of uh, bike use, you probably have seen these statistics all over the world, hyper-escalated during COVID. And so this, this idea that some of these trends which were already going this way, you know, closing off city centers to cars in order to have more pedestrian-friendly and, and bike-friendly areas, were already in the works and were really, you know, really pushed forward in a dramatic way by COVID in, in many different countries. And so I, I, I think, again, you know, what is a city? How do we live in cities? How do cities become – there's some – There's a wonderful book called Darwin Comes to Town where they're looking at the biodiversity of of life within cities. Um, I I think it's something like 250 out of 300 bird species in Britain are found in in the city of London, you know, (laughs) like that in fact cities can be these places that have an incredible diversity of wildlife in them um, if we think about the way that we create uh, you know, through the center of, of um, is it Amsterdam or Oslo? I can't remember which uh, has a whole corridor of green roofs to allow the migration of butterflies to move more easily. You know, so we have all these innovative ways of doing things. And so it's important to see. I just saw, you know, in the city of Toronto, for example, there's a requirement that, that buildings over a certain size have to have living roofs on them. And the city of New York uh, has been working with Toronto to bring in the same kind of policies for New York City. Just today, I saw that the state of California is now uh, moving forward with a mandate for uh, solar power, which has to happen now on buildings of a certain size, which will include large residential as well as factories and other kinds of industries. So these movements are happening and have incredible traction and have track records of success. And we need to be hearing about them so we can advocate for them in, our, in the places we live um, at the same time as we are concerned about climate change, you know, like really pushing for these things. Yeah, yeah. But, but before, we're, before we're done here, Ellen, uh, talk a little – I'm an old journalist, and, and I'm, I'm curious. I, I don't know as much as I should. You mentioned solutions journalism. Fill me in a little bit on mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so it's this network that started the Solutions Journalism Network, but really the idea of it, which has now filtered much beyond that network, is that we need to look as rigorously at solutions and report on them in the same way that we look rigorously at problems. And what's fascinating to me about Solutions Journalism is that, and and it's the same for academics, um, if we're looking at problems, you can do that by yourself, you know? And I think a lot of the reason that our our environmental um, journals in, in academia are also almost entirely problem identification, just like media. It's because alone we can report on a story or investigate something and uh. look at more and more detail about what's broken, right? It, uh. You can do that alone. And in fact, if you think about all our business examples of a SWOT analysis, right? You look more and more specifically at what's not working. Mm-hmm. What solutions journalism is doing is what positive psychology is doing. It's what I think uh, collaborative research is doing is saying, 
to really look at solutions, you have to you have to work collaboratively with others. You have to move beyond your field of knowledge to work with others who have a broader field of knowledge because solutions tend to fit, um, you know, in policy, in practice, in science, in social norming, in all of these things. And so, um, to me, it's this movement from individualism to collectivism, and and that's why, again, I think the response to COVID vaccines, which was the largest scientific collaboration we've ever seen on earth is a very positive development, you know, of really working collectively towards something that matters. And so the same thing is happening with journalism. And what they're finding is for journalists working in solutions journalism, one of the great things that network has done is taken um, funds coming from trusts and foundations and actually paying news outlets to have a journalist cover something from a solutions orientation, not to just talk about the good news, but to show um, the complexity of that story. In fact, they have a wonderful program called Complicating the Narrative because solutions are complicated. You know, they're not one-off fixes. And so to cover them properly requires more, you'll appreciate this as a journalist, a more in-depth investigative approach. Um, whereas the problem, I think sometimes we can we can minimize that too to not see the complexity of it. So that's really the idea is to to put as much energy in what's working in the directions we want and to understand in what ways is it not working and where does it work better and those kinds of questions rather than just focusing on on how damaged this thing is. Ellen, I admit that I thought I was going to have trouble being civil in our discussion. <laughs> because your title, <laughs> your title, Hope Matters, just sounds like Pollyanna in an historical moment where the walls seem to be crashing down around us. I did not understand that hope has been thoroughly studied and that it clearly affects human behavior and actions in a real and measurable way. And conversely, leaving it out of the equation and relying solely upon negativism and doomism also directly affects humans in making them useless and ineffective going forward. You've helped me define my own feelings. I do retain a good deal of hope and optimism that we can do something about our ongoing destruction of the planet. Your book details many, many areas where we are doing things and making a difference in this regard. I realized most of my emotions have been anger over what we've already allowed to be done to the planet, anger at the inherent stupidity of our species. But I will be adjusting my utterances going forward with the new realization that gloom and doom are just as harmful to our cause as many other things we're doing. I interviewed Solomon Goldstein Rose for his book, The 100% Solution. He's a millennial, still in his 20s. His take on things was very matter-of-fact and straightforward. We can fix this. We can fix this. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much mm-hmm. for talking with me today. And thanks for your openness, Dan, and you're really, that was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. All the best to you. I hope to run into you again. Sounds great, Ben. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Ellen Kelsey's book, Hope Matters, came out just a few months ago. You know how to find it. It's an unexpected gem in these times that teaches us how to move forward successfully in attacking the dire straits we face in a quickly changing world. Hope is a silly idea. It's the one thing that will keep us on track toward solutions. 
Thanks for joining in on another episode of Suicide Earth. We're not just killing us, but we can fix this. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.